Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 48th edition of Data Bytes, getting things done with data and government, kindly supported by Smart Data Research UK. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening here at the IFG and online. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. Now, can everyone hear properly? Good. I was just checking that you have confidence in the speaker. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that never happens. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to welcome you all to the first Data Bytes of 2024. Happy New Year. This is actually the longest gap we've had since the series started back in April 2019. 110 days. That's longer than the current Welsh Labour Leadership Contest, which will conclude just before our next event. It's more than twice as long as Liz Truss's <laughs> government lasted. It's equivalent to listening to all Nadine Dorry's audiobooks 16 times, or 76 times Michelle Donnellan's tenure as Education Secretary. Though it's only about a seventh of the time that Northern Ireland was without a government until a few weeks ago, and about a sixth of the time since the government first announced its Rwanda asylum plan, which, as you can see, continues to go very well indeed. <laughs> Now, we used that break wisely. A sincere thank you to everyone who filled out our survey about improving data bytes, giving us levels of approval that would put an autocracy to shame. There will be a few changes. We'll be switching to a six-weekly cycle from April. We'll be looking to run more themed events like this one, and we may experiment with some different types of uh, times of day as well. I was particularly pleased by this person's answer to what you enjoy most about data bytes, <laughs> Gavin's good jokes. Slightly less pleased with their answer to what do you enjoy the least about data bytes? Gavin's bad jokes. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that the jokes or attempts at them are here to stay, and I'll let you judge which category they all fall into. Let's get the housekeeping out of the way. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to get involved on social media, <laughs> It's hashtag IFG Databytes, and we are live tweeting, still, from at IFG Events. And to put questions to our speakers, if you're online, you can use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. It's bit.ly slash slidodb48, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can also use that, or you can raise your hand. Though do note this feedback from our survey, questions in the room are always long-winded. Consider yourselves told. And if you are online, please do get your questions in as soon as you can, as you are on a very slight delay. Why does the IFG organise data bytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does data bytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 48th data byte, bringing to an end our sixth cycle of eight events. You can watch the previous 47 events on the IFG website. So what's happened in UK politics since we last met? Well, as ever, it's been a quiet few months. 
A few days after the last data bites, there was a reshuffle. A minister for common sense was appointed. Not sure what that implies about all of the other ministers. But the big story was the return of former Prime Minister David Cameron, four Conservative PMs before Rishi Sunak. One Twitter user pointed out that if Tony Blair had done that, he'd have had Ramsay MacDonald as Foreign Secretary, a reminder both of recent turnover and the stellar 20th century electoral success of the Labour Party. While we're on turnover, that reshuffle gave us a 16th housing minister appointment since May 2010, though to be fair, he had done the job for seven weeks under Liz Truss. It was a busy start to 2024 for IFG, with the publication of our Whitehall Monitor report on the size and shape of the civil service. Numbers were up, churn was down a bit, but still high, and morale fell. Down too were the number of charts in the report. There's the pink line for 2024, blue for 2023, with a run rate slightly lower than this time last year, though still better than England's against India. The year also began with the nation gripped by a traitorous orgy of betrayal where only one person was left standing, as Simon Clark called on Rishi Sunak to quit. Uh, a reminder that they used to work together in the Treasury. Now, the traitors wasn't the only TV highlight, with the post office horizon scandal finally breaking through into mainstream consciousness. Let's hope the salutary warning it provides on trusting automated systems without question, transparency or redress is heeded by politicians of all stripes, thinking AI is about to solve everything. There were two more by-elections and two more resounding Conservative defeats. We also have the Rochdale by-election to look forward to, if that is the right phrase. There's no official Labour candidate, but three former Labour candidates standing. The Conservative defeat in Wellingborough was particularly crushing, the second biggest fall in vote for a governing party since 1945. If we go back to 1979 and look at seats changing hands in by-elections, we can see this parliament now has the highest number that have changed hands and most government losses. Coupled with a high number of MPs changing allegiance, most recently former Tory Deputy Chair Lee Anderson being suspended, that means the government's working majority has fallen by more than 30 since the 2019 election. In MOG news, Here's an old favourite showing cats in the Cabinet Office. They will soon be joined by another. Cat Little, who spoke here at the IFG back in November, who's been appointed new Permanent Secretary of the Cabinet Office and Civil Service COO. And in other Civil Service appointment news, the Government has finally appointed a Government Chief Data Officer. Now, some of you may remember me singing a sea shanty at a previous Data Bytes, which looked forward to that appointment. That was three years ago. <laughs> Hashtag impact. <laughs> it's actually a vacancy that's existed for eight and a half years. Now, it would be really cheap of me to point out how many trust governments you could fit into that time. 62, <laughs> since you asked. But it's also longer than Harold Wilson was Prime Minister could yet be longer than Winston Churchill's premiership by the time they start work, and isn't far short of some other long-serving PMs. Let's hope it doesn't take the new CDO quite as long to make a difference to data in government. And speaking of being smart with data, let's turn to tonight's Smart Data Special. First, we'll hear from Joe Cudderford of Smart Data Research UK on safe access to smart data for research. 
Ben from Frank Gould of Smart Data Foundry on unlocking financial institutions' community intelligence through private sector data sharing at scale. After that will be Professor Gina Neff of the Mindaroo Centre for Technology and Democracy at Cambridge on opportunities, challenges and lessons from research. And our final speaker joining us virtually will be Ben Goldacre from the Bennett Institute for Applied Data Science at Oxford on Open Safely. We'll be back with Data Bytes 49 on Monday the 18th of March. You can sign up for that one on the IFG website or via bit.ly slash IFG Data Bytes 49 capital IFGD. IFGDB. Then we'll be back on Wednesday, the 17th of April, when we'll be celebrating 50 instalments and five whole years of data bytes. What have I done with my life? A huge thank you to Smart Data Research UK for supporting tonight's event. We're only able to run Databytes through the support of partners like SDR UK. If you would like to follow in their virtuous footsteps, please drop Pratesh an email. And as ever, if you'd like to follow in the footsteps of our speakers, please drop me a line instead. So that's more than enough from me. I'm now going to hand over to Joe. the clicker. Uh, right. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Joe Cutterford, Director of Smart Data Research UK. I'm going to be talking about a new £59 million investment that UKRI is making in digital research infrastructure that will make it easier for researchers to use new forms of data. Um, I'll talk about what is smart data, uh, why do we find it so interesting and so valuable, and what are we going to do to make it easier for researchers to do good things with data. Um, so we define smart data as all data generated through everyday interactions with digital services, digital devices. Um, there is very little you can do in the modern economy that doesn't leave behind some kind of digital trace. And it's a very wide and growing definition covering everything from um, social media usage, smart home devices, digital payments, loyalty cards, banking data, um, wearable devices, and so on. Um, the key thing is it's not data that's collected primarily for research, but it can be reused for research that has much wider public benefits. Now, unlike survey data and unlike uh, administrative data, smart data tends to be held by private companies, and they are using it, as we know, all the time to uh, develop and deliver products and services that we all know and love. Uh, they're using it as well for uh, marketing purposes. And um, we are at a point now in the UK's research data landscape where we have been seeing innovative research using smart data across a whole range of areas. We have four opportunity areas in our programme. Uh, productivity and prosperity, health and well-being, digital society and sustainability. And looking at just one of those as an example, health and well-being. So this is a study uh, led by James Flanagan and his colleagues, um, Imperial UCL and Birmingham. So they're using loyalty card data from Boots and loyalty card data from Tesco to try and understand something about the relationship between shopping habits and the development of ovarian cancer 
So at the moment, there's no reliable way to screen for ovarian cancer and because the symptoms tend to be um, non-specific, it can go undiagnosed for quite a long time. Um, it's thought that during that period of, you know, you get symptoms but you haven't got a diagnosis, um, women tend to begin by self-managing the symptoms using over-the-counter pain and indigestion medication. But uh, we have a real gap in our understanding of that because studies tend to rely on um, the ability of patients to recall when did you first start getting these symptoms, what medication were you buying. So it's quite an unreliable um, source of data. But this, the researchers in this study were able to look at real shopping data over a long period of time. Uh, they had a health questionnaire and they had a, a sample of women with ovarian cancer and a, um, a control group. And so they were able to uh, isolate a particular relationship between purchasing particular over-the-counter pain and indigestion medications and the onset of ovarian cancer um, on average eight months prior to a diagnosis and four, that's four months prior to attending a GP appointment about this. So a really important finding, really important study. The researchers think that they could one day develop this into an alert system where we could choose to be notified if our shopping habits indicated uh, something to be concerned about. Um, but it also tells us something about the challenges of working with smart data because in this example and in many types of um, research that are using smart data, the researchers have to go to great lengths to build a relationship with those companies, to acquire smart data, to put in place all of the legal and um, technical infrastructure that you need to have in order to be able to process these data sets safely. So if we want to be able to support more research um, like this, then we are going to need to invest in institutions that can do this work for us because to have individual research teams all trying to put in place their own separate legal and technical arrangements would be very inefficient, not just for the researchers but for the companies as well who would have to have lots of separate bilateral relationships. So what are we going to do to make this easier? So the first thing to say is we have already got some very strong foundations in the UK. Uh, the last decade has seen a real flourishing of digital research infrastructure, trusted research environments that are providing secure computing environments where researchers can access sensitive data uh, securely and do analysis without personal data ever being um, at risk of leaving the secure environment. Two, um, ADR UK and HDR UK are two great examples of that from the administrative and health data spheres. Two examples I wanted to mention, um, ESRC has been investing for the past 10 years in the Consumer Data Research Centre and the Urban Big Data Centre. Um, these are very successful um, centres that have been building research partnerships with a whole range of private companies, bringing data into a secure environment and supporting research in areas like urban development, health, diet. So based on these programmes, uh, we've got a very specific understanding of what works, but also where the gaps are and what we need to build uh, and improve on. So we are going to spend our £59 million over the next five years, um, firstly on some new data services. So this will be the most part of our investment. Uh, we have a funding call that went live last Thursday and closes on the 2nd of May. Um, these will be 
um, centres of expertise in established institutes across the UK, specialising in different types of smart data, different research themes, and they will be responsible for, for acquiring data and providing the infrastructure and the and processes for secure access to support research. Um, we will also support innovative research. Uh, so we're going to be focused on research that develops um, new data sets and demonstrates the value of smart data to challenging social and economic issues. Um, we will also crucially be investing in a public engagement programme. So we're very committed to making sure that the public are very involved in the development of Smart Data Research UK. Obviously, we'll be fully compliant with all of the relevant data um, uh, protection legislation and so on, but we also want to make sure that the public voice is at the heart of our programme. Um, so we have a public dialogue that kicks off this summer. Um, we can say more on that soon. Um, and finally, um, all of this will need some careful coordination. So we're going to have a central hub based at ESRC. Um, so we're taking uh, a model that has been successfully uh, implemented for ADR UK, um, where we'll have a team that will ensure that the data services are joined up, help to develop new partnerships with um, a, a wide audience, and work with government to uh, identify how smart data and how smart data research uh, can connect um, and have an impact on public policy. This is just um, our roadmap, so I think the only thing I'll mention is the funding call again, which closes on 2nd of May, and in September, that's when those data services are expected to be coming online. Um, we are always on the hunt for interesting use cases, so if you have a problem that smart data might be able to help with, please do get in touch or if you want to discuss anything about the programme, you can contact us through any of these means. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Um, a reminder, if you're watching us online, um, you can submit questions, as many people are already doing, uh, on the Slido, which is bit.ly slash slidodb48, if you're not already there. Uh, those of you in the room, you can use that as well, or you can put your hands up, which is what I'll ask you to do very shortly. Uh, please do wait for the mic to come to you. Do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can, but do remember we are on the record. So I'm going to come to the room first. Any questions in the room? I've got a hand straight up there. And I'll come to you uh, after a couple of online questions. So uh, James Robson, Data Protection Officer for the Labour Party. Um, great presentation, really love what you're doing. Um, I just want to get an idea of how you would judge the efficacy of an SDE, uh, Secure Data Environment or Trusted Research Environment within the project you're proposing and have you chatted to the DARE boys, DARE UK, Digital Analytics Research Environment? Uh, yes, thank you. So, good question. So, yes, so the DARE UK programme, for those that don't know it, is um, an initiative that's been set up um, to look at the particular question of how do these trusted research environments that we have now that are holding different kinds of data securely in their um, different environments, how can we think about the cohesion of those data services? Um, are there ways that we can make it easier for users to look at data between the data services in secure ways? So, we're very much engaged with that team. Um, and uh, they've got a you know, complicated and difficult question, but very, very supportive of that kind of work. Um, uh, did I answer, answer your question, or is there another part to your question? Um, how are you going to judge the accuracy of the proposal for it? Uh, right, yes. Yeah. So, so part of our funding call 
um, we will have an expert panel that will look through all of the proposals that come in um, and part of that panel will involve assessing uh, the feasibility and um, the uh, compliance with all of the sort of relevant security um, privacy measures and so on. So it'll be that, that kind of expert panel will be making those decisions. Great, thank you. I'm going to go online for the next one. This is from Steve Black. Evening to you, Steve. For early diagnosis uses of smart data, what is the cost and level of false positives and how low does it have to be to make the idea valuable overall? Not sure I am best placed to answer that question. So could, false positives in early diagnosis? Yes, so I think um, where, where the data might be showing that people are um, potentially ill with something, but it turns out they're not. So I suppose, how, how, do you, how do you correct for that or guard against that in some of these studies? I'm not, I don't think I've got an answer to that right now, but perhaps we can pick it up in the um, discussion later or afterwards. Brilliant. Uh, let's come back into the room. Next one, we had a question just there. <coughs> Hi, David Durant. Excellent presentation. Thank you. Um, I didn't hear anything about public data sharing agreements or equivalent. Is there going to be a public list of which research groups are going to be accessing data from where and for what reasons? Um, so is your question about whether or not we're going to be publishing lists of um, the people using the data? Yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah, I didn't mention that. Um, so we think that transparency is really important. Um, and we're very committed to putting in place mechanisms that will make sure that uh, if there's an application to use data that's in Smart Data Research UK infrastructure, that, it's, that there's a published record that that application's come in, whether or not that application is successful or not. I think that's quite important to be able to see the things that are rejected and why as well. So we'll be um, working with our new data services to work out the best way to do that. Great, thank you. Um, another online question, this one's from Sam uh, from Med Confidential. Evening, Sam. Um, given this weekend's government messaging, and I think there have been a few stories about DWP's use of uh, data and what it wants to do with people's data, can you think of any adverse consequences of making club car data available in bulk to DWP for policy choices? <clears throat> yeah, so, we, so um, we're not planning to make club car data available in bulk to DWP. Um, so government researchers would be eligible to use Smart Data Research UK to run research, um, but the, pro the projects that anybody, you know, if anybody wants to use Smart Data Research and they have a proposal, their project needs to be approved, the people need to be approved, um, so all of the, the necessary safeguards will be in place regardless of whether you're a government researcher or an academic researcher. Um, and when you're using Smart Data Research UK, you're, you're, you don't have access to the bulk um, club card <coughs> file with personal data. Data's de-identified. You can't take any of the data out of the secure uh, research environment. So the safeguards in place will protect against um, any of that. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back into the room. I'm conscious our questioners have not been hugely diverse so far. Uh, anyone in the room want to ask a question? Uh, I've got another one down here at the front. Thanks. Um, Paul Atherton, Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Um, I'd be interested, have you done any research against smart data collection usage against people who do not use smart devices? So are you getting a correlation between people that don't, for instance, use technology in abundance um, that matches the results that you do with people who do? A really good question. <clears throat> um, so, it's, so it's one of the challenges with this data source is that um, it's only giving you information about the people that are using those services. 
And we know that you know, there's different demographics and uh, digital exclusion. Some people don't have the same devices. I, I have an Apple Watch, so I'm probably, you know, loads of biometric data on what I'm doing, but I'm sure ma most people in the room don't. Um, and a key part of our program is actually not just kind of making data available, but developing the methods and the tools to understand what is good about these data sets, what can you do with them, and what's missing and what can't you do with them. Um, and I think I'm also interested in thinking about how you can not just see a smart data as a sort of data source in isolation, giving you the answers, but how you can bring it alongside other data, survey data, administrative data, um, to be able to sort of start to provide uh, the context um, and much more of a richer picture. So I think your question is really important, um, and hopefully through some of the uh, research that we're going to be supporting and the data services, we'll be able to start to understand who is it that we have in, the, in our sample here, but crucially, who's missing. Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. This is from Tom King. Is there any international collaboration planned or comparable initiatives overseas? Yes, um, great question. So it is a, um, something we've been looking at. So there are some interesting examples, um, and actually Gina might be able to talk about, about some of these later. So we've been talking to colleagues in uh, the University of Michigan. Uh, they have something called the, the Social Media Archive there, where um, they have, I think, recently launched a service that has data from Meta, so Facebook, Instagram, available to researchers. Um, so we've been talking to them a lot. There's some great um, researchers in Australia who have been making real advances with um, the, uh, a model of access which is more sort of data donation. So that's where you start by approaching a member of the public uh, via an established research sample and asking them um, for consent permission to access their own data. You know, could we look at um, Gavin's Twitter account or something like that. Um, not sure you need to do that. Um, and then another, another place that um, has been doing some really interesting work is um, uh, Netherlands. They've been doing something similar. Um, and there's another one that I'm forgetting. But there is, oh, and I think the other, the other thing that's interesting from, kind of from an international point of view um, is the regulatory landscape. So there is um, new legislation, which I think kicked in in uh, Europe last week or very recently, the Digital Services Act, which has specific provisions um, to enable researchers to access data from the big platforms um, and a whole regulatory process that goes around that. Um, the UK, is, you know, I think, will still be able to potentially benefit from that particular bit of, re of regulation because I expect that what the big platforms do uh, for that regulatory context, they will also do for other countries that might not be part of that regulatory regime anymore. Um, so certainly we have our eye on what's going on internationally because, you know, we're learning a lot, I mean, and there's particular opportunities to collaborate. Bang on time as well. <laughs> uh, thank you for getting us off to a great start, Joe. Thank you. Uh, and sorry to those of you whose questions we didn't get to, some really good ones uh, online uh, again. Uh, we now go to our second speaker. That's Frank. Good evening, everybody, and everybody online, and thank you to Databytes. Um, my name is Frank Gold, and I'm the CEO of Smart Data Foundry, which is a not-for-profit subsidiary of Edinburgh University, set up with a purpose to open finance for good, and I'll explain what that means. Um, we've had a long belief, and we've proven through our, our partnership with NatWest Group, that financial institutes hold untapped community intelligence. From a coverage standpoint, um, it's well known that for, just take top four 
banks in the UK hold over 75% of consumer current accounts, and actually the same for SMEs. And every day, every hour, millions of financial data points are created. And in the de-identified aggregated data that we collect, it's incredible the number of use cases that that economic data can be applied to, especially when combined with others. And they are the data for good cases that we pursue, particularly in three areas, socioeconomics, where we combine the economic data for social uh, research, health economics, where we're, we're combining, and there's a lot of stages to go through, health data with financial data, and then finally, new areas for us moving into combining economic data with climate data. And as much as the financial institutes have this data, they find it very challenging themselves to leverage this for good. Um, I'm from banking and technology background, and banking is a risk environment. So the perceived risk combined with GDPR compliance is rather constraining for banks to be able to do this themselves. And apart from that, um, I've headed up the data warehousing and analytics companies, uh, groups within a bank, and they literally are maxed out on regulatory reporting, banking reporting, um, be it analytics to support products, they really don't have the capacity to pursue in a priority sense these type of cases. And then towards the end, um, the power really of the financial data is when you combine it with other uh, ancillary data sets, other private sector data sets or, or health or administrative data. And it, the banks really aren't in a position to take those data sets inside their environments to be able to combine them. So. Uh, Enter Smart Data Foundry. Um, we focus on private sector financial data with a clear purpose to use that data for good. And uh, you can see in the top here, but the power really in our work comes where we would combine it with traditional sources of data like a survey or, or researchers or analytics, um, combining qualitative and quantitative data or some of the work we're doing in Edinburgh with the Usher Institute, which is uh, three research projects looking at combining health data with economic data. That's leading on to work we're starting to do with HDR UK. And then finally, administrative data, actually working with local authorities in Scotland, pooling together their siloed data to help them make decisions and do a better job of allocating the services that's gradually taking us into more work with ADR UK and Scotland, the scatter. Um, and so through that work, we've pioneered new approaches to opening finance through good. Um, we gather de-identified aggregated data which you update monthly, which is normally the shock that we get when we talk to researchers. Um, our data goes back to 2019 as a <coughs> longitudinal data set and is right up to date with as of four weeks ago. We can tell you what happened at Christmas. Um, that comes from our trusted data partners. We have uh, data partnerships uh, agreements with each one of them. The basis being legitimate interest in particularly research in the public interest. We hold that within a trusted research environment in Edinburgh, which is actually also where the Public Health Scotland hold the NHS data for Scotland, uh, a very secure data with incredibly powerful computing to go with it. And that is under the guidance of our risk management, our information security, and our specific information governance that we created in conjunction with the ICO through their sandbox. All of that to create an environment where we bring together the best of research with our data science to go after use cases like these three. 
During the COVID pandemic, we created the COVID dashboard to help uh, government decision-making, a simple dashboard which gave them an indication by data zone of income expenditure and balance, which was helping them make decisions. Um, off the back of a research project with CEBR, we now using Sage Cloud Accounting data, an SME dashboard that we release on a quarterly basis that's now picked up by Small Business Commissioner, Federation for Small Business, and even reported on Bloomberg. And then finally, the dashboard that we created at the end, I'll take you into more detail. This is a dashboard that we've created for local authorities, uh, not specifically in Scotland, that's where we started, uh, to help them make decisions. And some of the results have already been applied um, around decision making. This is a dashboard we created for an area just outside of Glasgow called East Renfrewshire. And what you see here on the left-hand side, um, this left-hand side, is an area of historical poverty Whereas on the right, in the same local authority, is an area of historical wealth. The size of the circles indicate the use of overdraft, yeah? continuous use of overdraft. And what you actually see is the circles in the wealthy area are actually the same size, if not bigger, than the other area. The color indicates the uptake of money advice services. Uh, and you can see it's high in the areas of known financial distress, but less so in that area. That's taken us on to a deeper and deeper study with that local authority, looking at the re reasons why, what has happened. And we can literally slide the data back to 2019 and actually see where it's happened. And then when there's interventions, bring it forward to see if it has an effect. And uh, the social uh, cases that we've gone in there, Speaking to a social worker in that group, really what she said was, um, I didn't believe that you bunch of data geeks could ever teach us something about the people we work with, but <laughs> we investigated and we literally found family problems that you identified there. And she said, we would never have seen them and we weren't doing anything about them until they got to a crisis point. So it was a great study for us and we can tell you more. So you can see is this is, we bridge this gap between private sector data, applying it for researchers, and at the same time apply it in the public sector such that they can improve their decision making. But we need to go further to create greater impact. And for us, in our view, it requires five things. Uh, we're actively working to increase the number of data partners uh, from financial services to find greater coverage of both consumer and SME data. Um, and then we need to streamline the process. Um, it can take up to 18 months before we, even at the stage of ingesting the data. We're going after that. It's great to have NatWest Group applying confidence and being able to explain to the other financial institutes in, in that area, but also we're tackling them all in parallel. Um, to get to that point where we're linking data sets, and we're really excited by what Joe and Bruce are doing with Smart Data Research UK, getting more and more of the data sets together, because that's the power that we see in the research we apply, such that we really hope private sector data becomes essential to research in the UK. And then the final point for me, 37 seconds, um, is funding. Um, this is an expensive business from my point of view. You know, when you take regular ingestion of data, you hold it in a, a trusted research environment with all of the conditions. The governance around this is extremely high uh, and, and occasions can involve public sector, public engagement, you know, for each one of the different groups. And then, you know, if you think about the engagement, we have to work with all of the banks, work with local authorities, and work with researchers across the UK. This is a, a, a really heavy going business. In a world which, 
quite honestly, by definition of the data partnerships, there's not a lot of revenue generation that you can really have in there. So um, we're really excited about what's happening with SCR UK. And quite honestly, we believe that we hope that's the stage towards uh, data becoming part of the infrastructure for research across the UK. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. Uh, a reminder, if you're watching us online, please submit your questions via Slido, bit.ly slash slidodb48. Uh, let's start in the room again. Who would like to ask the first question? Otherwise, online are already ahead of you, so I'm going to jump online instead. Um, we've got another question from Tom King. Um, you gave some successful examples, he says. Mm -hmm. Are there any failures, and how do you identify and resolve insights that are unhelpful? We haven't had any failures yet. Um, I think some of the most controversial is where we're asked to do research studies that we won't do. We will never do anything that's of commercial benefit for a company, we've been asked. And we've been asked by areas of government to do uh, research um, into the financial viability of new taxes, which we stayed away from, uh, unsurprisingly, quite a common thing in Scotland, unfortunately. But um, no, no failures yet. Um, actually, some, I would say, in working with the Usher Institute on health, uh, one of the, the problems our health counterparts is during COVID, they almost had a, a wartime level of permission over health data, which was taken away. And so, whereas we've been able to do some of the economic analysis quite quickly, it's really, really slowed down that area, which I know came up in the COVID inquiry. So, uh, some areas take longer than, than others. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come into the room. I'll come to you first, and I'll come to you next time around. Thanks, Deborah Kroll, Smart Data Research UK. Could you just talk a little bit about the role that regulation has played in enabling this data access? I think in the end, the, the basis upon which the data sharing was the first part. So um, there's different groups that we work with. Some work on a consent model. Uh, it's very difficult to work on a consent model to have a, a continuous data. So we work around legitimate interest. Specifically, um, the data sharing is research in the public interest, which is great. Um, it took us a long time to establish the information governance processes that we'd be happy with. Uh, one of the advantages in Edinburgh is that we have, within the same university, representatives from ADR UK, from HDR UK, and uh, we could learn a great deal from each other in that area to be able to bolster the practice. And quite honestly, we had a trusted, trusted research environment ready for us uh, to go in that area. But, um, I think it will evolve, you know, um, there's always uh, some degree of moral outrage whenever I talk about what we're doing and uh, I think it's going to be evolving regulation uh, as, um, I don't know, in some ways, um, some of the feedback we have is, wow, I can't believe you're using this data. And others, it's, thank goodness we're actually using uh, my data for good, you know, so um, a bit of both. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. Uh, this is from Jonathan Flowers. When you were doing the local authority support work, mm -hmm. how small a level of granularity do you go down to? And he's put efficacy versus anonymity. We spend a, a lot of work making sure that there's no degree of attribution uh, at the point of ingestion of the data. We won't go down to a level where you could attribute a person or a street if a street has got too few on it, we knock the data out. So 
we handle an awful lot of that at the point of data ingestion, yeah? Uh, the way in which you see in the graphs is we go to the data zone level, uh, which is like, um, I don't know, EH1, the first part of a postcode is the level that we go down to at that point in the lower, but there's an awful lot of time by our data scientists and information governors to make sure that uh, there's no attribution. Yeah. Great, Thank thanks. You. Uh, we had a question there. Uh, thanks, Frank. Uh, Emmanuel Trano, University of Bristol. A uh, related question, actually. I was wondering what data sources you, you use for the local authority example you mentioned, and whether you were able to uh, extend beyond Scotland, for instance, MSOAs in, uh, in England and Wales. I'd love to ask the guy in my team who sits behind you, because he remembers every single bit of it. But uh, it's a combination of the financial consumer data that we have. And then we pull in some census data, government data, as well as consolidating what the local authorities have access to themselves to build up this picture of the decisions that they make. So, Hui, did I miss anything? Yes, we have GBY data. Oh, yes, sorry, GBY data. So UK not including Northern Ireland, where we don't have enough data. Great, this may be a record. It's 41 minutes into a data bite, and I'm going to ask the first question from Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> How are, you, how are you linking, for example, financial data with health data? If it's by a probabilistic method, what's the reliability of correctly linking individuals' records? This is the point, it's dangerous because I'm no data scientist, you know. Um, I mean, the linking for most of what we do is um, if the common index is a data zone, then that's the area that we have it. Uh, one of the pioneering projects for the Usher Institute was actually to look whether we could understand the economic impact of long COVID. There's something between two and 3% of the Scottish population got long COVID, and we can see that in health data. Um, and we're trying to, how do you link de-identified data between financial data and health data? So uh, that's actually a service by the National Records of Scotland that can do that type of work. Um, we're still working on it after about nine months. Um, there. The university is happy with that, and the HDR UK is happy with it, but the, the bank don't recognize um, that group to put their um, the ident identifiable data over them to create the index. So we keep working on it, but right now, our favorite index is DataZone. Thanks. Uh, let's come back in the room. I've got a question down here at the front. Thanks, Lucy, Behavioural Insights team. I was just wondering if you've been working with the challenger banks as well, and if so, what are you finding kind of different about the data that they're collecting and their data inf infrastructures? Yeah, no, it's interesting. So um, right now I'm working with SFE, which is the Scottish financial sector body, and uh, I presented to the whole of the banking sector there. And what actually came forward is, so you take Scottish Building Society as a tiny building society who have savings and pensions. Another one, um, we're working with Virgin Money right now. Um, Santander UK is still quite small. And um, so we're gradually picking them up. What is the challenger banks is, is my data useful enough? And for us, as we paint together this picture of banking across the UK, it is. And in fact, it shows different areas for us. But for them, what they worry about is the, is the burden of being able to provide this on an ongoing basis. But, uh, you know, really, it's a patchwork quilt that we're piecing together from all of the different banks. Um, right now, we don't have the data in yet to be able to see where to go with it. But um, what we sometimes find with them is that they have 
regional areas. So if you take Virgin Money, unsurprisingly, it's got Glasgow and Yorkshire, and then down to Newcastle because it's Clydesdale, Yorkshire Bank, and Northern Rock within that area, which is what we see. Or different types of financial products is typically what we find. Thanks. I'm going to go online for what I think will be the final question. This is another question from Steve Black. What volume of data are you using and how much is the typical cost to use it? I'm not going to tell you the cost because Joe Cudderford's sitting there. Um, <laughs> no, um, right now what we have is uh, 5 million accounts yeah, um, across the UK from one of the banks. And uh, of course, banks compete with each other. So we want exactly the same from the other leading bank. Um, in the beginning, the, the aggregated sets that we have were uh, about 22. We used the open banking data set because it was common. But now we've moved to a deeper set. So the data set we're working on now is 5 million consumers across GB uh, with 220 uh, different aggregated classes across income and expenditure. So it's a little data. Brilliant. Well, Frank, thank you very much. Not indeed. Thank you so much. And we now move to our third speaker of the evening. That's Gina. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. I have the honor and privilege of following two great talks tonight. So you'll hear me say everything Joe said. <clears throat> I am a sociologist by training, and I, my research has spanned how people have looked at data in their workplaces from the beginning of the commercial web to today. These are three of the books that I have done about data, including one on digital devices um, for a project that we did with Intel and the human-centered data science book, part of a $40 million, pound, $40 million investment from the Moore Sloan Foundations into making a discipline of data science in the US at the universities of New York University, University of Washington, and University of California, Berkeley. Um, the book I'm working on right now is, um, though, a bit of a throwback. And it's really the challenge that I want to present you tonight, and is a, a, both a metaphor and a, a warning. Um, I've spent 15 years looking at the rollout of what is now called digital twins technology, building information modeling was what it was called when we started the project. And my collaborator, Carrie Sturge Stosick, and I are, are completing that book manuscript. So can data change a sector? Can data change an industry? Can data change jobs? The short answer is it's really hard. When we look at the social and cultural and social institutional challenges of how people work with data and all the constraints that come with that, we see that getting data into the hands of people to make change is actually really hard. If you think working in government with data is hard, let me introduce you to commercial construction and the challenges they've had in trying to get this data to flow. So um, one of the things that we've been doing, this is what Joe said, 
Um, one of the things that we've been doing at the center that I run, the Minderu Center for Technology and Democracy, is to really think about how we can take on and change some of those social, institutional, and power relationships in our society that helps us get data and technology to be used for good. So, so the kind of value proposition that I think brings all of us together really is that new kinds of data hold um, potentially enormous um, value in terms of helping us know about social, social behavior. Um, and as Joe said, the data really help us ask new kinds of questions. In fact, it not only helps social science researchers ask different questions and answer different questions, it changes the nature of our question asking. So we see students, we see our PhD students come in, and they suddenly say, not this is what I want to know, but this is the kind of data that's out there. How might I find something out? We really are thinking differently about what we could know. Um, however, and those examples, by the way, that I flew through on those slides, they're from the amazing um, studies and case studies that smart data research have been doing. Um, however, as part of a Royal Society National Academy of Science working group on, on researcher access to data, we've identified some of these challenges that we have for getting data into the hands of making, making good. I want to really drill into two of these for a moment. And the first is access. We've, we're, we've talked in the beginning of tonight's talks really about what can be or could be possible. But in the world of social media data, which is the, the, the world that, that I'm working in, we're still facing enormous challenges for getting that data into researchers' hands. The second, I would say, a lesson that we have learned from COVID is connecting data across different institutions and jurisdictions still is incredibly difficult. We can argue that may be for very good reasons. As citizens, we don't want our data flying around the world um, all um, higgly-piggly. Um, but but when, when our governments have an concern, a, cons a, a legitimate concern for why data should move and the kinds of choices they can can be making, we might have different kinds of challenges. So for example, COVID researchers faced um, challenges moving data during COVID across national jurisdictions. So let me use the rest of my time in three case studies. The first is a project that I'm working in the European Union. This is an EU Horizon project, thanks to the UK's um, Horizon Guarantee Program. Um, AI for Trust, this is to build an early detection warning system in multiple languages, multiple platforms, multimodal, multi-channel, uh, multilingual. Um, we are have, facing enormous challenges in getting training data to build that classifier um, because we want to be able to look at circulating misinformation about climate and about health we need the data to be able to do that, and it's incredibly hard. Um, I called this in Wired earlier this year, a new digital dark age that we're facing, that researchers are actually um, very much in the dark in terms of what we know compared to what social media platforms have access to. 
Um, we need to figure out new ways to get that access to that data. The work that we're doing at the Mindaroo Center for Technology and Democracy really is um, helping to advocate for researcher access to data in new UK, EU, and US legislation. I can update you a bit about that in our discussion. But I will say part of these international efforts are about both linking how legitimate public use and access to this data could be structured and figuring out how we build the regulatory, i.e. the legal mechanisms for making sure that that access is guaranteed. Um, making this actionable, though, is actually quite challenging. It's challenging for those questions of getting the data into people's hands, getting building the infrastructure, and getting the scope and scale that we need. Finally, just a pitch for the work we're doing at um, the Responsible AI UK initiative. This is a 35 million pound initiative from UKRI to create an international ecosystem for responsible AI research and innovation. And part of what we're doing now is thinking through what are those parameters around responsible AI that we want to make sure that we get in the research community that helps us think through these challenges, um, helps us ensure that we've got the data to build the models, we've got the infrastructure to do the work that helps us build technologies for good and for the future. And finally, just a, um, a mention of the center that I run. You can look at our website for more of the work that we're doing. Gavin. Thank you very much, Gina. Um, a reminder, if you're watching us online, bit.ly slash slidodb48. I'll be saying that in my sleep tonight. Uh, let's come to the room first. Who'd like to ask Gina the first question? Plenty of ground to cover. I'm going to hold the silence until somebody puts their hand up. Thank you very much. Uh, just wait for the microphone. Hi, Gina. I'm Bill Roberts. Do you think legal protections for um, legitimate use of data are enough? Do we trust people to follow the law? Do we trust people? To follow the law. Do you think the law will... To follow the law, yeah. Um, uh, and and just, so the, the question is, do we trust people to follow the law? Um, I, one of my hats is training doctoral students and training doctoral students in research ethics. And time and again, I face the question, not from any of my students, of course, <laughs> um, you know, why can't I just do this, right? So for example, in the AI for Trust project, we, where we are trying to build a, um, you know, early detection, mis and disinformation, um, a detection tool that would automate and um, supplement the work of human in the loop fact checkers. The question that some of those researchers might ask is, well, why can't we just scrape the data? Why can't we just take data and, and, and use it for building our tool? Um, and the short answer there is we've been tasked by the European Commission to build something that accords with European values, and particularly these values under the Digital Services Act um, and GDPR. 
And increasingly, we are now having to pivot in the middle of building our tool to think about what the EU AI Act will mean for what we have done. So will people follow the law? Maybe not always, but if we don't have the law, they can't follow it. For social media platform companies, I think we have to be very clear that the balance of power is completely and utterly skewed so that if we don't have some kind of structures, legal structures in place, we won't be able as researchers to get access to data that has enormous public benefit. In the words of one of the anthropologists who sat with the election 2020 study, this very splashy big study that, um, that came out earlier this academic year, the, the researcher tasked with watching how people did access this data through work said this was um, access by assent from the company. And that's not truly the way we can get science done. So if we're relying on the companies to give us permission for the data, we won't be able to ask those really great questions. What could I do with this? Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go online for the next one. This is another question from Jonathan Flowers. I'll come to you next. Um, is there a role for participatory methods such as citizens' assemblies in addressing some of the data ethics considerations here? Jonathan, thank you. That's a brilliant question. I feel like American softball, we have this thing like getting the softball question. That's a, a slower pitch baseball for those of you. Um, I know, I know maybe test match cricket is more on the more topical, but you know, a slowly pitched ball so that the batter can really knock it, as we say, out of the ballpark. Um, um, we have at Responsible AI UK just released, um, a, or about to release, a set of um, collaborations that will soon be announced that help us develop those participatory models for getting people involved in the decisions around data and around building AI models. We also, I'm working with the ESRC Digital Good Network, and we too have this participatory angle. How do we ensure that people um, are both aware of how their data is being used, but how they're really brought in, that we're not simply we're not simply um, you know, ticking a box, please don't read this fine print, we're gonna take your data. I think those models for how we do responsible data really are over. We need to work with communities in a deep, engaged, honest, participatory way to help co-design what this data can be. And as a throwback to that, I was incredibly inspired by the work I did um, around self-tracking data um, that, that resulted in the self-tracking book. We spent a lot of time with the quantified self community. And in that community, not unlike this one, a lot of people who care very deeply about data, they would come together and they wanted to understand how they could gather and use this data about themselves for better insights, for things they wanted to change. I think data in the hands of people is one of the most powerful things you can do. But we can't simply say, oh, your data's out there, go do something with it. We need that kind of engaged, sustained co-design and capacity building work that really helps us build new kinds of data futures. That's the kind of digital society that I'm super excited about building. 
And I think we have in the UK an extraordinary opportunity to get there through both events like this, but also through the kinds of initiatives and data, um, um, uh, internationally leading data initiatives that, that, that both Frank and Joe are a part of. Thanks. Uh, we've got a question right there at the back. Hi, Gina, Paolo Gerbaudo, Complutense and OII. I wonder how much artificial intelligence uh, projects focus on basically large language models, right? How much the equation is between these two, or whether they also encompass recommender systems, right? Because I think that recommender systems are very humble application, but a very consequential uh, application of machine learning. And I think perhaps it's a bit under-researched given its implication for democracy. Um, yes, putting on democracy hat. Um, ChatGPT, large language models have dominated our conversation in the last 12 months, 11 months, since the public has become aware of ChatGPT and OpenAI. There's an enormous, as you said, enormous different ways of thinking about um, what a responsible AI uh, present and future would be. And I think you're absolutely right. We can't simply drill down and think just about large language models. We have, we have many more things. You know, large language models um, aren't, they're not magic and they're not the answer to everything. So one of the things that we're doing in, in Responsible AI UK is thinking, um, really, how do we spark the research um, community to be working together in multidisciplinary ways around new kinds of data? So, so while there are um, enormous opportunities to do things around large language models. Most of the projects that we're looking at so far are not necessarily large language. Like most of them are, are not around LLMs. So long-winded answer, but there's lots to do. Thanks. There are two brilliant questions online, but it would take 14 minutes to answer them, I think, rather than 14 seconds. So Gina, thank, thank you very you. much indeed. Thank you. We're now going virtual for our final speaker of the evening. Uh, hopefully, we're about to be joined by Ben Goldacre. Ben, can you hear me? Hey, hello. Yes, hi. Excellent. Over to you whenever you're ready. Hey, great, thanks. And sorry to not be there. Um, as our data infrastructure gets better, I think our railway infrastructure is deteriorating. Um, I'm going to tell you just briefly about Open Safely, which is a very large uh, trusted research environment that we built during the COVID pandemic. And what I hope to show you in the next eight minutes is not just that we built it, but also a little bit about how we built it. Um, so first up, the general practice data that we have in this country is an extraordinary opportunity. It's got breadth and depth, one record for every citizen and detailed information on all GP contacts. So it can be used to do amazing research, of course, that's relevant to a global population because of our ethnic diversity, but also a huge opportunity to monitor and improve NHS care. But it also presents huge problems, privacy and transparency. You can't just give people download access to this data, especially, um, uh, well, in particular, not after just removing names and addresses, which was the historic approach to protecting privacy. But it also poses huge challenges around usability. These are very large data sets that are hard to use. 
It's also worth noting this is a contentious space. So there's been lots of prior investment, but there's still no national data access, or at least uh, until we came along. There's also been widespread civic concern about previous efforts. So when the NHS proposed extracting all the GP records into one big computer, three million patients opted out of GP data for research, and there was a catastrophic loss of public trust. And also there's been kind words about sharing code, but that's very rare in practice. So in Open Safely, we developed a new way of working. The data stays put. We install our open source tools in the data center where the data already resides. Secondly, as I'll show you in a moment, the researchers don't interact directly with real data. They work on randomly generated dummy data. And then lastly, all the platform code and the analysis code is shared in real time. So what we have as a consequence is an access, uh, access to an unprecedented volume of data. The entire nation, the whole of England's GP records available linked to other data sets with complete trust and support from the professions, privacy campaigners, citizens, juries and so on, and very high productivity. So 63 papers published after about a 10 million investment to date, which I think is pretty good value in the scale of these platforms, and 155 projects from 22 organisations. So this is a, a general purpose platform for users across the community. So first up, we do hands-off data analysis. Normally, a researcher sits on a machine and writes their code for programs to uh, manage the data, change its shape and format, and then turn it into graphs and statistical models. They usually do that by working directly with the data. In OpenSafely, we don't let you do that. We give you randomly generated dummy data. The researcher uses that. Then when their code is ready to run, it's tested by the system against their dummy data, and then it gets sent off into the real environment that contains the real data, which no researcher ever gets to enter. And then the machine comes back to them with an outputs folder full of their log files, their graphs, their insights, and so on. So when we started doing this, the first pushback we got from the community was, how do we know you're really working this way? So we put all of the code for the entire platform up on the internet, free for scientific review, security review, and efficient reuse. Next up, people said, well, Maybe we believe you about the privacy protections, but we still can't see what people are doing with the data. So we built a live real-time public log. And if you go to jobs.opensafely.org, you can see everything that's being run against 58 million patients' records. And when I say everything, if you click through, you will get down to individual GitHub repositories containing all of the code that's being run against those patient records. Just for the context, GP practices remain the data controller for the most fine-grained data, and NHS England is the data controller for the service, and this is the NHS England Open Safely service. So by doing this, we've earned unprecedented trust from all the people who previously objected to access at this scale. We've got strong formal letters of support from RCGP, BMA, MedConfidential, strong formal support from Joint GPIT, Citizens Juries, and so on. And because of that, when the COVID pandemic came to an end, Open Safely data access was not switched off, and we've been able to continue running the service, and we're shortly going to expand it. But we didn't just want to be secure, we also wanted to be productive. So part of the way that we work is we had to do things like standardise all of the data management tooling, automate things so that you could be sure that people who had written code on their own machine at home could be guaranteed that it would run at the other end. So for a window into this, GP electronic health record data is not made for researchers, as Joe said at the beginning. It's made for um, clinicians and patients. It's a, an aid memoir to help you remember what's happened to the patient previously. And then you want to turn it into something that looks a bit more like an analysis-ready data set um, in the table at the bottom right. 
So to achieve this, instead of having the previous model of effectively um, closed anarchy in data management, we built standardized data preparation tools in a domain-specific language, electronic health record query language, where you write your code once and it will run anywhere that the open safety tools have been built. So that allowed us to have federated analytics where we can have the same code running in multiple different data centers. And there are lots of other advantages to having standardized data management tooling. For example, it's very legible. Every new new user can read and understand every prior user's code. Automating things makes it fast. You can update your analyses quickly and you also get federated analytics that works nicely out of the box. Because a lot of the people in our team are software developers and people who come from a commercial environment before they committed to public service and and open safely, we've also got a really strong sense of delivering a service. So a couple of examples, we have a five person days of uh, full-time user support up front. We give uh, we give people a, an experienced user who works alongside them over the first six weeks of them working on the platform. There's comprehensive technical documentation. There's about 70,000 words of user manual online at docs.opensafely.org. And because you write your code initially on dummy data, that means that people can actually get working on the platform without ever communicating with us at all. They can't run their code against real data, but they can start using the tools and evaluating them and seeing whether it suits their work. Working methods. And then we've also built some point and click tools for people who want to work on this kind of data, but who don't have skills on um, things like GitHub, Python, R and Stata. So last up, we impose open methods on the community. And now that was critical because everybody says they love open methods, but policy doesn't necessarily lead to better practice. So the way we built Open Safely, you write your code, you put it on GitHub, you tell us where the code is on GitHub and we run it, or rather the machine runs it automatically against patient records. So all code on OpenSafely has to be on GitHub before it even runs. And all code run on OpenSafely goes in the open for everyone to see and reuse. And that brings all the benefits of open code that I hope everyone recognizes and agrees with, which are it's open for quality checks, it's open for reuse, it's good for accountability, it blocks p-hacking. You could try and analyze the data 100 ways until you got the answer you want, but everybody would know that you'd done it. And also it's really good for public proof of delivery on a platform like this. So tons of outputs in lots and lots of different COVID topic areas. Here are a few examples. And most excitingly of all, this is the announcement from Department of Health, NHS England and ourselves that we've got stable funding for the NHS England Open Safety Service and that we're going to be expanding out to do work on non-COVID platforms. Alongside that, we're also um, uh, currently under review with ESRC to expand it to retail data, where the interesting opportunity is that we can prove to retailers that the data they've shared has only been used for the purposes that have been agreed. We've just got funded a project to do Open Safely as a layer on top of education data with National Institute of Teaching. We're doing some work with various partners on using the tools in a network to federate different data centers together. And we're also building non-Open Safely infrastructure because we don't think Open Safely is the only way to do things. Um, so if anybody's keen, then please do get in touch. And sorry not to be there in 3D. Thank you very much, Ben. Can you see my big two-dimensional face now? We can, we can see you. Your face is on right. the screen. 
Um, just a reminder, if you're online, it's bit.ly slash slidodb48 to ask questions. Uh, I'm going to come to the room first. That was about 40 slides worth in eight minutes. There's plenty to dig into, uh, and we've got a question there. Thanks so much. A bit, bit like a masterclass, that one. Um, what's the next step, surely? National data intermediary organization able to scale up to you know, all national data sets to bring together in a model as transparent and using sort of your, your pet's bingo list of federation synthetic and TREs in, in various ways. What is the next step? Because surely this is the next step, an evolution to societal data sharing and ecosystems that will just enhance and allow for AI generation, but in a transparent manner. So the thing that we're really keen to do next is twofold, really. And first of all, as I said, expand the network of data centers that have open safety tools built in them. And then secondly, I think our model of standardized data preparation and then um, uh, that allows you to send code out for remote execution. Open safely, I think, is probably the only sort of large thing doing that at scale in the UK. I think um, we would like to see others who are able to adopt that way of working, collaborating with us and in a wider network to get that kind of interop. Um, I think the challenges here are not particularly technical once you've got good ideas and good teams that can build it. There's a bit of a um, workforce shortfall, but the real challenges are small p political, I guess. It's um, getting funding in place and also it's it is a contentious space. You know, it's a space with lots and lots of organisations competing, uh, often with a long history um, and often with a mixed his history of delivery. Um, and, you know, it's a challenge with fast moving spaces to, to push through that sometimes. Thanks. I'm going to take two online questions together, both about uh, the opt out. Uh, Anonymous asks, so those three million are no longer opted out? Question mark. Um, I think the, they're just wondering, does it mean that they're, they're now back in the system? Um, while Tom King asks, what prospect is there of persuading people to stop opting out and change the minds of some of the millions who already have done? So I think the opt-outs are a really difficult legacy of some not very sensible ways of working. Um, I think it was a mistake to go to the public and to say that we were going to extract everyone's records into one big machine and even worse than that, to disseminate that out to multiple different locations. Um, and I think it was a real mistake that we gave false reassurance about the benefits of pseudonymization um, as a way of protecting people's privacy. So we are where we are. I think with opt-outs, we have to make sure that we don't, we have to make sure that we stop making new mistakes around privacy management and infrastructure to stop the problem getting any worse. Um, I don't think the time is right now to start revisiting um, opt-outs, but I think when we've got a really good coherent data infrastructure for sensitive data, and that could be health and could be other data sets as well, then I think that's the right time to go back to the public. Um, in terms of the NHS England Open Safely service, which is the service in 58 million patients' records that uses the Open Safely tools, during the pandemic, uh, we were able to run code legally across the whole population's data um, now, under our um, permanent direction and under the new direction for non-open safely, for, for non-COVID um, research, uh, type one opt-outs will be upheld. 
Um, and I hope that over time we can justify to the public that there are different ways of accessing data and that for the most secure, hopefully people will give, um, give their consent or assent to that data being used. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back into the room. We've got a question down the front here. Um, can you speak a little bit more about um, the dummy data that you mentioned? Um, I think I'm, I'm from ADR UK, and we're we're thinking about synthetic data. We, we're using some of it, and I, I'm guessing that's what you mean by that. Um, and I know that there are different levels of fidelity, and that I believe people who are creating synthetic data are still decide. We're still figuring out where the line is drawn. Um, so if you could speak a little bit more about the dummy data that you mentioned, and please don't make your answer too technical because I'm not a data scientist, so I wouldn't understand. <laughs> Thank sure. you. So, so um, we use dummy data, synthetic data, in a very different way to most groups. Usually people take real data and then they add noise to that data. And the ambition that they have is that they will add enough noise that they can protect people's privacy, but not so much noise that they destroy the true statistical signals in the data. We think that probably doesn't work, and that's because we've worked with it in various different ways in different settings before Open Safely. So we use synthetic data very differently. We have completely randomly generated dummy data, and the user, the analyst, never uses that to actually run their real code. They only use that randomly generated dummy data as a kind of test environment. So they use that to write their code. But when their code is ready to run against real data, they press a button. It gets wrapped up in a container using something called Docker, but a very highly refined and standardized version of that that we've built. And then that gets sent off to run against the real data. But researchers never use synthetic data to try and do their real analysis. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to go online for the next question. This is another one from Steve Black. I think we can still hear you, Ben, although you seem to have frozen image-wise for us. Uh, Steve asks, um, government seems keen to invest in analysis tools like Palantir, but do they invest enough in the underlying infrastructure and data quality? Um, look, I think it's the biggest shortcoming in this space today. Uh, I think um, traditional research funders uh, really, you know, pretty good at picking winners when it comes to single research projects, epidemiologists, and so on. But I think we haven't been investing in innovation and tools and services around uh, data infrastructure. And that is a different set of skills that we've optimised for. So I think um, it's natural when people feel that they haven't got um, other options, that they reach for traditional approaches like a, one big checkbook procurement. Um, I think it falls to the whole community to prove out different ways of working. Um, I suppose the, the one thing that I really hope for the future is that we can get away from the idea that to link this data together, you have to make a giant data lake where you put all the data on one machine. I think what we've been able to prove with OpenSafely is not just that you can do a remote analysis where users don't have to tinker directly with the data, but you can also federate data centers so that you do just-in-time linkage. You take only what you need from each data center to the other data center in order to run your analysis. I think I think that the era of data lakes is hopefully coming to an end, but that does require that that funders and the community engage with teams of innovators, not, not just us, who are pushing out in this direction. 
Thanks. I think we've got time for one more quick question from the room. Straight up with a hand there. Hi, thanks, Paul Atherton. Um, I'm just interested, how are you going to persuade the public uh, about the benefits of sort of open source? I was at um, SOCON 24 a couple of weekends ago, and one of the biggest problems they were having is going, trying to explain to the public the benefits of open source. Um, I don't know if it's necessary for us to directly explain that to the public. I think explaining it to commissioners and payers is really critical. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really struck by with uh, always working in the open, sharing our code as the best, best way to drive technical collaboration, not particularly as a moral good, the thing I'm struck by is that it just drives delivery. I think teams that are still in the old habits of not sharing their code uh, just simply don't deliver as well. So, you know, when I look at the fact that OpenSafely has delivered 63 completed published papers for £10 million in the space of just a couple of years, which is very favourable productivity in comparison with other um, platforms that work in more traditional ways, um, what I see there is just the power of, of open. It's every new user gets to benefit from every previous user's code. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing to observe that if you can create the right structures for people to work in, then it's a bit like catching rainfall in a barrel instead of it just draining away into a ditch at the end of the road. It means that you've you've created this resource. Every single useful technical act by every single user in the platform, when it's shared in a structured, standardized way, is available for review and forking and reuse by every subsequent user. So, uh, you know, I, I share, I think, your, your, uh, your urge to evangelize for open methods. But I think, actually, what you can also do is just use open ways of working and prove that that's what ships. And insofar as this is a rational market, which I'm not entirely convinced it is, but insofar as this is a rational market, then the more you deliver, the more people will recognise that that's the right way to go. Well, Ben, thank you very much for rounding off our evening perfectly. Thank you for joining us. I say that, I do have a few quick parish notices before we go. Uh, we will aim to have video and audio of this event on the IFG website within 24 hours. You can already watch it back as live on Slido or YouTube. Um, the next IFG event, there are plenty coming up, uh, will be on Tuesday the 5th of March. It's all about mission-driven government. What does it really mean? Uh, we've got the CEO of Nesta and Georgia Gould, the leader of Camden, uh, on that panel. Uh, also events coming up on fixing the centre of government, uh, asylum policy and the of think tanks in the general election. There'll also be lots of budget coverage and much else besides on the IFG website. Databytes returns on Monday the 18th of March. We've already got speakers confirmed from the ICO and from National Highways. So that's bit.ly slash IFG Databytes 49 uh, if you'd like to sign up to that. If you'd like to sponsor a future one or speak at a future one, uh, come and speak to me or Pratesh afterwards. All that's left for me to say before I release those of you in the, in the room uh, out to the reception on the landing. Uh, three thank yous, first of all, to you, our audience uh, here in the room and online. Some brilliant questions tonight. Thank you for coming along. Uh, second, a huge thank you to Smart Data Research UK for sponsoring tonight's event and bringing us some brilliant speakers because my third big thank you, and please do join me in some applause in thanks to our wonderful speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>